Well, it's good to see you this evening. Thank you, brother. I might need that. My voice, as you can tell, don't have to tell you, is not in the best of shapes. I was up in Michigan for a month. I got one of those Yankee bugs up there, I think, and uh, I'm having a hard time with it. So just got my sinuses going and got back down here and everything's blooming. We were up there in the ice and snow and then come back down here at springtime. So Oh, that's better. We're going to be over in 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel chapter 19. And it's good to see uh, Brother Bobby and Brother Doug and their wives tonight. It's good to have you guys with us. And to sort of give you backtrack... Uh, we started on Saturday dealing with the... What, what we're doing is taking some uh, little snippets out of the story of the life of David and trying to draw some spiritual application from those. And we started with uh, the strategy of Joab to get David to bring back his son Absalom. He hires a woman. She probably won Best Actress that year at the Oscars to... Uh, come and pretend to be a widow lady who's lost her boy. You remember she lost one son and murdered the other, and now the rest of her family want the neck of the remaining son, and she comes to David basically pleading uh, that, do I have to lose both my sons? And, and of course what she's doing is telling David his own story in the third person. And as I said this morning, David's a sucker for that. Nathan the prophet did it to him about the rich man with the sheep and the one man with the one little ewe lamb. Uh, and David falls again for the story. And basically, uh, he says, no, nobody's going to touch that remaining son. And she then turns it around on him. Well, why are you being faulty? Why don't you bring back your banished? The Lord makes has devises means to bring back his banished. And that's sort of what we, where we camp to show that what she is describing in Old Testament terms is, yes, God is a God of justice, a God of law, a God of righteousness, and yet He has devised means where when men sin, there is a way for them to return back into His favor. And of course, in her day, that would have considered the sacrificial system and the cleansing of those who were unclean and all of that. But it is a way of describing the Gospel. That's what the gospel is. It's the means that God has devised this plan, this scheme, if you will, that allows us to come back to God into His presence, into His favor. And then this morning, we went ahead with the uh, saga of David having to flee from his own son, Absalom, who turns against him. And the... Uh, just calamity we think about having a bad day I, no day I've ever had can compare with what David experienced that day and all of that went on there well we continue this story a little bit a little bit further tonight into this chapter 2 Samuel 19 let me just read one verse verse 24 to get us started we'll be all over the place but this gets us started 2 Samuel 19, verse 24, And Mephibosheth, son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and had neither dressed his feet, nor trimmed his beard, 
nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came again in peace. Let me try to describe the circumstances. First of all, you do remember Mephibosheth. We talked about that earlier. A wonderful story of how this lame son of Jonathan is up in a place, Lodabar, in the northern part of Israel, apparently hiding out, trying to be below the radar. Because as I described this morning, the first order of business, when one dynasty, when one royal family secedes another, usually what happens is that they go and kill all the male remaining males of that previous dynasty. And that cuts down on rival claims to the throne, you understand. We see that happening over and over again in the history of Israel later on. So Mephibosheth, no doubt, thinks he's a dead duck. If David discovers he's alive, if David discovers where he's at, uh, he's a goner. And sure enough, David does find out where he's at, sends his men to fetch him, bring him to Jerusalem. He's down there on the ground before David. And instead of executing him, as he probably felt was about to happen, David more or less adopts him, says, you're going to come live in my house. You're going to eat at my table as one of my own sons. And Saul's estate, I'm giving that back to you. I give you Ziba and his servants and sons to be your servants. They're going to work the farm for you. But you're going to be here in my own home. And I still can't get over the words of Mephibosheth. Who am I? What am I? That you would look upon such a dead dog as I am. But then this morning, as we saw David fleeing Jerusalem, and it's just like wave after wave after wave hits him. Of course, his son Absalom has raised an army and is marching into town just as David and his family and his loyal men are fleeing out one side of Jerusalem. Absalom and the army is entering the other side, driven off the throne by your own boy, the one that you so death. I mean, clearly Absalom is David's favorite son. And he certainly thinks that it'll be Absalom that will be reigning on the throne after him. I think that's what's in David's mind. It's just unthinkable to think that your own boy has risen up against you and is seeking your life out to kill you. And you have to run, flee for your life. Then you remember the other things that begin to happen. He learns that Ahithophel, his trusted advisor, his trusted the Henry Kissinger of that day, has defected over to Absalom's side. In other words, all of a sudden, people he put trust in are turning against him and betraying him. And just about the time he reaches the top of the Mount of Olives, now you have to understand, this is just a stone's throw out of Jerusalem. He's gone out the east side, down the gully, to the Valley of Kidron, it's called. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane is, down there where Jesus prayed the night of his betrayal. And then he's gone up the top of the hill on the other side. That's the Mount of Olives. He's no sooner got up there than he begins to learn. Now here comes this guy Ziba. Remember that servant of Saul that he had given to Mephibosheth to work the fields? Ziba comes up with a couple of donkeys loaded down with provisions. And David said, what are, what are these? Said, well, these are for you and your men. When you flee, you've got something to eat. And David says, where's your master? Where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, well, he's sitting back in, he's back in town. Licking his chops, thinking, he's saying, today, the kingdom of my father, Saul, is going to be restored to me. And you think about a dagger to the heart. First of all, how in the world could Mephibosheth be so ungrateful? 
How could he do such a thing to David when David showed him such kindness? And number two, how could he be such a fool? Does he really, you know, he's the lame son of Jonathan. Does he really think that Absalom has raised this army and driven his father off the throne just to hand the kingdom over to Mephibosheth? You want to say, wake up, son. And so David says to Ziba, the land I gave to Mephibosheth, I'm now giving it to you. I mean, here you're showing me loyalty. Mephibosheth has turned against me. So you take the land. But I have learned something from the ministry. A few things. I'm sure some of you fellows have learned it too. That there's always two sides to every story. And you better wait until you get both sides before you make any judgments. And that's exactly what we see going on here. Well, you know the rest of the story. We talked about it this morning. They go out into the battle. Absalom is caught his that hairdo. Bobby, you know, preachers with long hair, you got to watch them. You ever notice that? I mean, you got to keep your eye on them. You go into the Old Testament and you look at these long-haired fellows. Absalom's an example. Uh, here he cuts his hair at the end of every year. Think, uh, hair, he weighs his hair. Number one, who is going to weigh their hair? You know, after a year, it weighs roughly five pounds. I mean, this guy's a hair-producing machine. Uh, he would be, what's the guy on the cover of those romance, not Fabio? Yeah, he would have been the Fabio, you know, long locks. And lo and behold, it is those long locks that is his undoing. Riding the mule underneath, out in the middle of the battle, catches his hair or his head in this boughs of the oak tree. And there he is hanging between heaven and earth. And Joab takes those darts and thrusts them through his heart. And the coup attempt is over. And so now everybody's sort of going back to the home with their tail tucked between their legs. If you were a betting man, you wouldn't have put money on David ever coming out of this thing alive. And suddenly David is back to king again. And so David is coming back into the land of Israel, coming across the Jordan River, back to Jerusalem. And you've got people meeting him down there to convey him back to his throne. One of those is this guy Shimei. You remember we've run into him a couple of times. He was that dude, not the smartest fellow on earth. David and his mighty men are fleeing Jerusalem. And this guy, he's got a house there alongside the road. And he's running along the hillside as David and his mighty men are leaving. And he's cursing him. Cussing him up one side and down the other. He's picking up rocks and dirt and throwing at David. And of course, David's still got his... Abishai, Joab, Abishai says, David, just say the word and that guy's head's coming off. You and I go cuss you again. <laughs> and David said, no, nah, calm down. Calm down, Abishai. Uh, if the Lord's bid him curse David, then let him curse David. In other words, David is realizing by now this is, this is some of the calamity that is befalling him because of his sin with Bathsheba. It's pretty obvious what's going on here. And David, rather being like a kid when you're trying to spank him, you know, rebelling and twisting, uh, David is willing to submit to the discipline of his heavenly father. 
So Shimei, guess what? It's the first guy to meet him when David, you know, nobody dreamed David's going to survive this. And now David is coming back to the throne and Shimei is coming down to the Jordan River with his tail between his legs saying, King, oh king, uh, could, could, could we just forget about that? <laughs> I, 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 I've sinned. I made a big mistake. Can we just let that go? And here's old Abishai says, let me go take his head off. You know, he ought to be put to death. And David has simmer him down. No, 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 no. This is a day of rejoicing. This is a day of celebration. This is not a day of retribution. But then next in line, in verse 24, is Mephibosheth. Okay? I want you to notice that what we have going on here is a wonderful lesson of how to deal with betrayal. Now, I think that is a terribly important subject because in my brief time here on planet Earth, in my even briefer time as a pastor and a minister of the Gospel, I find that when people fall away, more times than not, it's because of some betrayal they have experienced in the Christian life. And it's not that betrayal is coming from the lost world out there. We sort of expect that. But it's being betrayed by those that you're close to, those fellow worshipers, those that you trusted and thought were on your side. I pastored for many years, won't go into the details, a church there in the Memphis area that was just practically destroyed by the actions of a former pastor whose actions so disillusioned. And in a lot of ways, my church back in its earliest days was a bunch of Jesus people out of the early 1970s, hippies that had been converted. And this fellow was the only preacher they ever knew. He was the only one they'd ever heard the gospel from. He's the one that baptized them. And then his actions so disillusioned them that, let me tell you, we had people drop out left and right back in the early days when I was there because they were so disillusioned by the betrayal of this pastor they put so much trust in. And that's just one, if you know anything about what's going on today and has been going on, uh, one example of so many of Christian people who were disillusioned by a pastor that they put their trust in. And it works the other way around. I know a lot of pastors that have never gotten over the blow of being betrayed by a dear friend, someone in their church, someone who was perhaps their right-hand man. You know, we've got those people, don't we, that are people that we put confidence in. We trusted them, and then lo and behold, they turn against us. They stab us in the back. There are many Christians because of something that happens in the fellowship. They never darken the door again. Not of just their church, any church. They're done. They're out of here. It happens over and over again. I believe the value of this section of Scripture is we see an example of how we are to deal with Betrayal. Mephibosheth, as you know the story, is supposed to be sitting back in Jerusalem waiting to be restored to the kingdom of King Saul. 
However, he doesn't really look like it, does he? Look, look here at the description in verse 24. He hasn't dressed, he hasn't washed his feet. Remember, he's lame. He hasn't dressed his feet. He hasn't trimmed his beard. He hasn't washed his clothes. Uh, you can probably smell him coming before he gets to you. We don't know how long it's been since David fled Jerusalem, but probably several weeks at the very least. Mephibosheth has just, what shall we say, let himself go. He hadn't cut his toenails, hadn't washed his feet, hadn't washed up, stinks like a, a skunk. Is this the actions of someone who is expecting at any moment to be put on the throne? Not exactly. In other words, I would say the first thing you see in Mephibosheth here is an identification with the king. Uh, when we talk about justification, the key word in justification is substitution. What our Lord has done for us through the substitutionary work of our Savior. When it comes to sanctification, however, I think the key word is identification. That we identify with Christ. We desire to be, as Paul said, that Christ lives in us. That we exhibit the life of Christ. And it seems to me that that is what's going on here with Mephibosheth. You can't do this overnight. You understand. It's going to be pretty obvious that from day one, when David fled Jerusalem, Mephibosheth has been on strike. And anybody can look at him and see whose side he's on in this conflict. Is he for Absalom or is he for David? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? But not only that, does he continue to identify, now he tells his side of the story. And I like the way he tells it. In the sense, he could have said, that servant of mine, he's a dirty old so-and-so. He could slander him, he could curse him, he can cuss him up and down. Instead, he matter-of-factly tells David what happened. Said David, when you fled, I sent my servant to go saddle a donkey. There in verse 26. So that I could ride on it. So that I could go with you because I'm lame. I can't walk. So I send him to saddle up the donkey for me to ride on. In verse 27, he, my servant, Ziba, has slandered thy servant unto the Lord, my, my Lord the King. In other words, he came to you with this line that I was sitting back there thinking I was going to get the kingdom back. Here's what really happened. He left me high and dry. He sold me down the river and he came and slandered me to you. But here's the real story, David. Look at the rest of this verse. But my Lord, the king is like, he's as an angel of God to me. Do therefore what is good in thine eyes. David, it's in your hands. I assure you that my heart is holy and solely with you. So you do what you want with me. Whatever you decide to do is okay. That's a telling thing. Whatever you decide, that's okay. Because, he says in verse 28, all my father's house were but dead men before my Lord. We, we know what generally happens when one family line takes over from another family line. We were dead ducks, or as he used the word dead dog earlier to David. 
In other words, wait a minute. I know where I was. I remember who I was and what I was in your sight. I realize that I have no more right, as he goes on to say. I, you, you set me at your table like one of your own children. So what right, therefore, have I to cry anymore unto the king? In other words, if you decide to take my life right now, that's okay. Because I've already received so much more than I was expecting to receive. You, you see his reasoning? It's sort of like you say, well, uh, I, you just can't believe what those people did to me. Well, are you in hell? Well, if you're not, then you're getting something better you deserve, right? Because that's what you deserved. So if you're not in hell yet, then you're getting mercy. You're, you're getting grace. And I think that's Mephibosheth's reasoning here. Whatever's happened to me is far more than I could have ever asked for. So David, I'm in your hands. Do with me as you will. It's okay with me, whatever that might be. And then there's the matter of the land. David, in verse 29, says, why, why are you talking any more of this? I'll tell you what, you and Ziba divide the land. You, re, you realize that David here is acknowledging that he really doesn't know for absolute certainty who is telling the truth here. Ziba's story had the ring of truth about it to a certain extent. Now Mephibosheth comes with his side of the story and he seems to be believable, right? So the question is, who is telling the truth? David's son that's going to follow him on the throne is, of course, Solomon. And what's Solomon known for? Wisdom. And what event was the one thing that got everybody's attention about how wise a king Solomon was. Do you remember what it was that sort of got him renowned and fame? You remember the two women, two prostitutes, both have babies in the night. Apparently one of them rolled over on one of the babies and smothered him and took the baby of the other lady. And so now they've come before Solomon, each of them saying, that's my baby. And of course, let's think about that. This is a difficult case to unravel, Correct. Oh, I know you know how to do it now because after the fact, oh yeah, that's the way to do it. But who beforehand could have figured out how to figure out who the, who's telling the truth here? I mean, both of them are prostitutes. It's not that either of their testimony is necessarily reliable. And it happened in the middle of the night. There's no eyewitnesses. There's no one else to know what really went on besides the two women. So how in the world would you unravel a situation like that? Well, Solomon, as you well know, has the answer. You got this problem? I don't know which one's telling the truth. Take that baby and cut him in two and give half to this woman and half to this woman. And all of a sudden, one of these women says, oh, 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 no, 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 don't hurt that baby. Let her have the baby. Don't harm the baby. And Solomon said, well, that's the mother right there. And like I said, you and I look at that and say, well, of course, that's the way you could have figured this out. We know we're real good uh, Monday morning quarterbacks, aren't we? After the fact, we can say, okay, this is how you should have done this. But who would have figured that out ahead of time except a wise man like Solomon? But my theory is that Solomon may have learned a little bit of his wisdom 
from his daddy. Because notice that David is doing the same thing here. We got this estate. We've got this family farm of King Saul's, his holdings, his land. He first gave it to Mephibosheth. Then when Ziba comes with his story, he takes it away from Mephibosheth, gives it to Ziba. And now Mephibosheth comes with his side of the story. And David says, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're just going to split it right down the middle. We're just going to divide the land. And wait and see who talks. Mephibosheth said unto the king in verse 30, let him take it all. He can have it. For as much as my lord the king has come again in peace unto his own house. Mephibosheth is basically saying, David, I, I'm not after the land. I'm not after the stuff. I want to see you on the throne. Now think about that in your own life. Dealing with these betrayals that come into our life. How could these people do such a thing to me? And as I said a moment ago, if you're not in hell, it's not what you deserve. You ought to still be thankful for grace and mercy. And yet at the same time, the real question here is, what, what are you really seeking? Can you ignore? Can you let that go? Can you continue on? Is your eyes upon the King? Or is your eyes upon the stuff? Is your eyes upon your reputation? Who's right? Who's wrong? Or do you desire from the depths of your being the glory of your King? And so if you wind up with nothing, if you wind up with your head being cut off, what difference does it make? The one thing you wanted to see is the King back on His throne. That's enough. I'm not after the land, David. I'm not seeking what's yours. I'm seeking you, your glory, your throne. That's what I desire to see. Now, one thing about these historical narratives is that a lot of times they relate what happens as here, and they never really tell you, do they, who's right and who's wrong. They sort of leave it hanging. I think we have enough hints here to figure out that Mephibosheth is indeed telling the truth. I may be wrong. I, I reserve the right to be wrong on that. That's my opinion. But I think all of the evidence points in Mephibosheth's favor. I don't hear Zeba speaking up and saying, hey, yeah, yeah wait, wait a minute, you know, anything like that. And so it convinces me that Mephibosheth is indeed telling the truth. And notice what he has done. He may have been disillusioned and disappointed by his servant Ziba, but David has not disillusioned him. David has not disappointed him. And I ask the same thing of you. You may get disappointed, disgusted by the betrayal of a fellow Christian, but has Christ ever betrayed you? Has he ever let you down? Has he ever stabbed you in the back and you say, well, I, you know, you promise this, but you give me this. Have you ever been disappointed from serving Christ? No, I'm not talking about what people, I mean, we get disillusioned all the time by stuff that goes on. But when my eyes are on the Lord, can I be disappointed or disillusioned? Because he has never failed me. Secondly, what right do I have to complain? I ought to be in hell tonight. 
No matter how things don't turn out like I think they should have. If I go back to the beginning, what I really truly deserved before all this started, I deserve to be in hell. I'm not there. So thank you, Lord. For whatever is happening, whatever else is going on, thank you for your mercy and your grace. We were children of wrath, deserving judgment. And God did not abandon us. We've been fetched like Mephibosheth to the table of our king to feed there is one of his sons. And if Mephibosheth had gone through this thing about not washing his feet and the story about being abandoned by his servant and then said, oh, oh yeah, king, uh, what about the land? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got this little thing about the land. Maybe I would look a little more skeptical. That would have put a cloud over the whole story. But it seems like it has come true that, David, that Mephibosheth indeed has a heart that desires the glory of his king. Now this is interesting, I, it's fascinating to me and, and a good lesson for all of us to learn. And yet, remember that David is an unusual character in the Old Testament. I, as I've said, he's my favorite Old Testament character. I, I believe he's the most Christ-like man of the whole Old Testament. He's almost like a New Testament man living in an Old Testament world. His spiritual sensitivity, he's not perfect as we well know, but he has a sensitivity to spiritual things that is rare to find a sense about what's going on and there may be a reason for that the Jews taught that when Messiah comes they knew he was going to be the son of David the descendant of David that when Messiah comes that in some way he's going to recapitulate the things that you see going on in David's life and you get the picture that, that is there going to be some parallels between the life of David and the life of David's greater son, the Christ. May I point you to this parallel. Go to Psalm 41. Psalm 41 in verse 9, we find this Psalm of David, you see in the title. Psalm 41 verse 9, David says, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who did eat my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Who do you think he's talking about? I think he's talking about Mephibosheth. He's the fellow I put my trust in. Go a little later in chapter 55, Psalm 55. Verse 12. For it was not an enemy that reproached me, for then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hidden myself from him. But it was thou. A man, my equal, my guide, my familiar, my acquaintance, my familiar friend, it literally means. We, we took sweet counsel together and walked into the house of God in company. 
In other words, if it had been an enemy that had done this to me, I could have dealt with it. I sort of expect that from my enemy, but it's you. It's my familiar friend. But may I point you to great David's greater son in John 13, the night of the Last Supper. John 13, in verse 18. I speak not of you all, Jesus says at the table, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. You see, there was an application to David in the betrayals that he experienced in his life, but the real meaning, the fulfillment of that verse is what our Lord experienced in his life. You think about David's life, you talk about just a story of betrayal from first to last. You know, Saul the king that he had served, killed Goliath, spared him, turns against him. He's on the run down at the caves of Adulam and he learns the Philistines are attacking the village of Keilah. And he asks the Lord, shall I go rescue Keilah? Yeah, go and do it. So he does it. And then uh, he inquires of God, well, will Saul come down here and attack me? And God said, yeah, he's coming. Will the people of Keilah turn me over to Saul? And God says, yes, they will. They will. When it comes down to you or him him or them, they're going to turn you over. Later, he's hiding out in the wilderness of Ziph, and not once but twice the Ziphites go to King Saul and say, you know that guy you're looking for? He's hiding out in back 40. We can take you right to him. And now the betrayal by his own son, Absalom, the betrayal by his trusted counselor, Ahithophel. You see, the idea of betrayal runs completely through. And by the way, not just David. Uh, Brother Mark, a little... Uh, preached an excellent message down in San Antonio. I don't know if you've heard him preach this, but on Uriah the Hittite. Talk about a fellow that was betrayed by his wife, by his king, by his commander, (laughs) and the mercy of God that he died not knowing any of that. Can you imagine dealing with the emotional side of knowing that everybody you've trusted has turned against you? But the betrayals that David experienced in his life are nothing compared to the betrayals our Lord experienced in his life. He came unto his own. His own received him not. It wasn't just that they didn't receive him. Remember, he goes and begins his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth. And what happens? They become so enraged, they drag him out to the cliff outside of Nazareth to throw him off. And so he leaves Nazareth and goes to Capernaum. Over and over again, he tells his disciples, there's an interesting Greek word, paradidomai. I don't know if you've run into that. Paradidomai means to hand over. It's either translated to hand over or betray. Uh, It's the word for betrayed. And you see it constantly. Jesus is talking about we're fixing to go up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to the chief priest. And then the chief priests are going to hand him over to the Romans. Every time he turned around, somebody's handing him over. Somebody's betraying him. First it was Judas. Then it was the priest. And then it was Pilate. Everywhere he turns, 
He's being betrayed. Paradidamide, handed over, stabbed in the back, double-crossed. And can you imagine our Lord on His way to Jerusalem saying, well, that's it. You know, if that's the way I'm going to be treated, forget this business of me going dying on a cross for a bunch of scum like that. A bunch of traitors. A bunch of people who, even my own, Peter, is going to stand there and curse me and say he never knew me. You can just go to hell. And yet our Lord in the midst of all that betrayal, goes to Calvary's cross and dies. Dies for those who, one after another, turn Him over. And in the midst of it all, as we learned this morning, there is the purpose of God, as it were, behind it. All those betrayals. But we read in John 3.16, God so loved the world that He Paradidomai. He gave. He gave over. He handed over his own son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Father has handed over his son to the enemy, to death on a cross. So that salvation might flow to you and me. To a people that He's dying for on that cross. Oh yes, David had his experience with this. But it was nothing compared to what our Lord experienced for us in His ministry. Thank goodness, thank God for Jesus Christ our Lord. Who set His face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. The old black preacher said one time, if I knew where I was going to die, I'd never go near the place. Jesus knew where He was going to die and how it was going to happen and all the betrayal behind it. And He set His face like flint to go to a place called Calvary to lay down His life for our life. Let us never get over it. Let us never get beyond it. No greater story will you ever hear than that of the redemption that was accomplished by our Lord at Calvary's cross. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this wonderful example of that. And may we learn from it. May we brace ourselves that if we've not been betrayed, we probably will if we're around here very long. Lord, it's part of the experience of the Christian life and it's a difficult thing to get over. It's a difficult thing to handle. But may our eyes be fixed upon our King who in the face of such betrayal could not be dissuaded, could not be turned aside from the purpose, the plan of redemption. The Father's will that would put Him on that cross as a ransom for His people to purchase them for His own to make them His bride. Thank You for such a Savior who would do such a thing for us, us fickle, betraying sinners. Thank You that You didn't leave it to us. Lord, we see the uniqueness of this thing called the Gospel, that there's nothing else like it. And may we see the beauty of it tonight. 
May it thrill our souls. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.